Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Alfred Griffin, CEO and co-founder of Lightforce, an orthodontics technology company that's raised over $150 million in funding. Alfred, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for uh, bringing it on, Brett. Excited to be here. Not a problem at all. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, my name is yeah, Alfred Griffin, uh, CEO, co-founder of Lightforce Orthodontics. I'm actually an orthodontist, grew up in a family of dentists. My parents met at dental school, so somewhat of an inbred dentite, if you will, and ended up in Boston and, and became very passionate about 3D printing. And that led to us founding Lightforce Orthodontics to solve a big problem in this field. Now, in the back of your head when you were going through school, did you always plan on starting a technology company at some point? Uh, no, not at all, actually. Did not even found this company to start a company, but really founded it to start or solve a problem. Actually, was a failed scientist before founding this company. It turns out... Um, the science project I was working on uh, to move teeth faster was not fundable because people didn't die from orthodontic problems. So I had to pivot into solving this problem, which if you're an orthodontist, is, is not a brilliant idea. It's, a, it's an obvious problem that is solved uniquely by applying modern software and 3D printing technology. So it felt like low-hanging fruit and also being in the Boston area, which is home to some of the best 3D printing companies, robotics companies, hard tech. In CAD software, it felt like a natural home to recruit the talent to solve this big problem in orthodontics. When it comes to inspiration for you, are there any specific founders that come to mind that just really have inspired you in your journey? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, like I said, what we're doing is not a brilliant idea. It's brilliant execution by a very talented team. And I guess one of the founders that I met who I think is a unique expert on the human condition and, and well-being which is, I think, important to create a culture where top talent wants to reside is Ariana Huffington. I actually got to meet her recently and had a very interesting conversation on the human condition. And, and she you know, derives excerpts from uh, meditations by, by Marcus Aurelius. And then, you know, in the, in the same tone, like shares how that influences her decisions to, to keep her phone away from her at night. I mean, just brilliant person that's, I would say, an expert on the human condition and creating a positive culture where very talented people want to spend their time. And that's critical to solving big problems like this, is creating a culture where the world's greatest talent wants to spend their time. She's done such a good job of being a leading voice for kind of a like anti-hustle culture. So I feel like that became big a couple of years ago. Yeah. Everyone just talking about just grinding away your life. And she yeah. came out and said, no, like, you know, let's take care of ourselves. I remember that one tweet she sent to Elon Musk where he was like, um, what happened? It was him leaving the factory at like 4 a.m. And she was like, please, Elon, stop. <laughs> I think his response was like, you don't understand. Sleep is not an option. But exactly. exactly. <laughs> There's a balance. There's a balance. And you only have so many life minutes to give. And a big part of a lot of people's currency in life is solving new problems and intellectual curiosity. But it's hard to you can't forget that you know people have families and other lives as well. And only when those things are in balance. I think you get people operating at the top of their level, top of their abilities. How do you manage it all with your personal life, with business, with family? What do you do to try to balance things out? 
<laughs> well, to some extent, I don't think I've been perfect at it, but to some extent, I try to combine them. For example, coming up, we have a uh, Lake Forest Rise event in Miami later in November. We have a lot of our doctors coming in. November is a great time to be in November if you live in Boston. So I'm bringing my wife, Karen, and daughter, Tilly, to Miami with me. So other than that, I think it's, you know, there are things that are very important to me that are uh, sacred that I, I just won't give up. And that includes my daughter, you know, bath time and uh, story time and, and brush teeth, especially those are those are dad duties. And, and those from 7 to 830 at night are sacred. And everybody knows that. I think being religious about those things and, and obeying some of those rules is critical. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, it comes from Ryan Holiday. He calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind? Yeah, I love history. And I think one of the things that, that I loved about Ariana is, is how you know she referenced the classics to guide a lot of her leadership principles. A book I read recently was called Lincoln on Leadership. And it was about Abraham Lincoln and, and what he did throughout his presidency and just some of the tenets that he you know, led by, I think are timeless. Just like you, you can look at the classics and see like a lot of the leadership principles back there are timeless. Some of the ones that Lincoln mentioned were things like get out of the office and circulate amongst the troops. I think that's a pretty relevant thing today when, you know, this big work from home culture, you know, I, I, it's, it's, you know, one of the great things about working at a startup is being surrounded by top talent and being able to sharpen your axe against other top talent. And, and that's hard to do when you're behind a computer screen. Other things such as being honest and transparent, it sounds basic, but when you do that, you build trust and, you know, trust is a core principle of light force, which sounds cliche, but once you have it, once you earn it, it enables you to make quicker decisions as an organization and move faster, minimizing bureaucracy and things, things like that. So lots of timeless principles, I think, from from that book that that hold true. My fiance likes to call me a, a history nerd. So it sounds like yeah, fit into a similar bucket. One question a friend asked me recently, which I thought was just a really fun question, is that if you could be born in any other time period in history, what would that period be? So what would it be for you? If you could be born any other time, what would be that like ideal time to be born? It feels like a penalty. I, I kind of like the time we're in right now. <laughs> yeah. Outside of where we are currently, if you had to go back, where would it be? Oh, man. I think I would be born as, as close as possible to the time we're in now, just because I don't know if people really understand how, how technology has actually made life so much easier. Uh, modern medicine, modern technology, the conveniences, things that bring us closer together. I guess I do have a bit of nostalgia for a time when I wasn't around when, you know, kids would neighborhood kids would just, you know, get on their bike and go visit their friends. And, you know, life sounds like it was a lot simpler, you know, back in the seventies and sixties. But again, I would be a time traveling visitor, not a permanent resident. I, I really like the time that we're in right now. Yeah. I've studied like John D. Rockefeller a lot. And when I read through his books and yeah, just about his life, you know, he had all of this money and all this stuff. I'm like, you couldn't really do anything. There's nothing even fun to do with all of that money. So it doesn't sound like it was that fun to even be at that level of success back then. So I agree. The courage is much better than, than back then. Yeah. If you were a, you know, multi-multi-millionaire in the early 1900s, that equates to being actually less than someone with roughly middle-class means or lower-class means today, given what the value modern medicine brings, modern technology, things like that. So yeah, that is wild. 
Yeah. Rockefeller may have been like a multi-billionaire, but he couldn't push a button and have food show up at his house 20 minutes later. So but exactly. the rest of the wins. <laughs> right. Exactly. He also couldn't drive a Tesla. So it's true. <laughs> let's switch gears now and let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. I know you touched on it in the intro there, but let's just expand on it. So focusing on the problem, how do you summarize the problem that you saw? The problem is that a lot of 3D data is required to do a really good job in orthodontics. And the only digital solution that gives you that power today is through clear aligners, which only work for roughly 20% of the population. 80% of people in the US and 92% of people globally use braces today. And today that's still, you take you know stock brackets out of a box, they all look the same. It, looks like a bunch of nuts, bolts, and screws, and you stick it on a tooth where you think it goes. And then you do a lot of tightening. You you bend wire by line of sight to account for a one-size-fits-no-one bracket and a very unique patient-specific tooth and patient-specific bite and patient-specific smile. So it's very hard to do a good job with that. And as a result, patients typically have to be seen for braces about 17 times and there are a lot of tightenings, which in reality mean unnecessary tooth movements. We solve that by essentially taking applying 3D printing and modern software technology so that every tooth, instead of taking an indirect flight to the ideal end position, takes a direct flight to the ideal end position. And like I said, this is not a brilliant idea. It depends if you're an orthodontist. It's just we're waiting for, for modern technology to catch up. It's funny, a lot of people create the analogy to what we're doing, you know, to clear aligners and people, you know, assume that clear aligners were invented around 1998 when, when Invisalign came around. But the reality is they were actually invented in 1946. Uh, and and what, what they would do is they would take, you know, the goopy impressions you probably had, and they would pour up a stone model and they would cut the teeth and move them by, you know, millimeters and super glue them back in the right place and vacuum form them and make, make aligners that way. But that is not scalable and way too expensive. And that's what Invisalign really solved in 1998 is they applied modern CAD software and 3D printing technology to operationalize aligner manufacturing. And that it was a wonderful thing for patients. It was a wonder it created a market for adult orthodontic treatment that didn't exist before. There, there were many adults who did not get orthodontic treatment because they did not want braces. And aligners were a great thing for them for orthodontists enabled them to grow their business and provided you know great value to the world. I would argue what we're doing in, in Lightforce is the same thing, applying modern software technology, modern 3D printing technology to what is actually a bigger market that serves more specifically the teen market, whereby teens are, are going to be not as compliant with clear aligners. They're going to have more complex tooth movements. They've never had treatment before. So all the things that the tooth movements that aligners are not great at, uh, like pulling upper teeth down, rotating premolars, tipping molars, things like that. Braces are really good at, and guess what? You can't take them off. So that's where we came in and said, hey, let's apply the same principles to make braces treatment more efficient and have a better user experience for patients and doctors. And we actually just had a clinical trial, a peer-reviewed clinical trial come out last couple of months ago, actually. Uh, showing that we had a greater than 40% reduction in the number of treatment appointments and a greater than 40% reduction in the total treatment time. And on top of that, better results when you compare it to stock braces. So if you're a parent bringing your child in, that's roughly seven fewer visits 
That means, you know, seven fewer times taking your kid out of school, seven fewer times taking off work, you know, 14 less trips to the orthodontist, you're burning less fossil fuel, whatever you care about, there's a clear value to the parents. For patients, you know, this is a, a very mission-driven company where, you know, we every all hands, we start with patients first. We, we have a doctor present, how did they help somebody? And that's the magic of what we're doing is we're really serving a patient population that needs it most, the teen and adolescent market. That's when, uh, do you have any kids? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, you know, teens, that's when you're really forming your sense of self in the world. It's a very sensitive age. And so when you can get them to an ideal smile in a very efficient time, you just see it. They smile more. Their parents, you know, if you're the doctor, they give you hugs and say, you know, you did all this for my child. They're getting better grades. They're, you know, more social. They having all kinds of fun in life. It's, there's a lot of feel good moments to helping improve somebody's smile at that age in life. Makes sense from a parent perspective. When I was a teen, though, I would have viewed you as like the devil. That was like the highlight of my life was like getting to leave school for any reason possible. And you always had dentist appointments and doctor's appointments and things like that. So if you're telling me you would have taken those away, I would have been offended as a, as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people would trade that in for not having braces at prom, though. So there's a, there's a balance. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now, so that makes complete sense. Yeah, we're looking at like the parent side and the, the consumer side that it's a, a better experience, less trips. On the business side, though, for the orthodontist, did they make less money then? And is there less revenue because there's less appointments? That's one of the things that, you know, we're figuring out with our customers. So, well, first of all, yes, they should make more money and, and it comes with a higher lab fee. So they pay more for light force than they would for stock braces but they see the patient seven fewer times or, or around there. And so what that means is that they should make more money per visit, despite the higher lab. And that means they either need to grow or they need fewer days in clinic. Maybe they need less staff. Whatever it is, they should be more efficient and they need to run their business that way. So we have many doctors out there where all they use is clear liners and light force. And that's you know what we refer to as a digital practice. If you look at the business profile of those practices, I would expect them to have lower or better operating margins. But the way you get there is a little nuanced. They should have higher lab fees and lower staff costs and lower overall overhead. So their profit per visit should be much higher. And look, there's precedent for this. You take something like Clear Aligners, which have been around for 20 plus years, that has roughly double the ASP of Lightforce. And for the right patient, you can still make more profit per visit on that model. So we, we know that it works. You know, we've been a product for three and a half years though. So I would say, you know, there's still a lot of learning going on, but things like this clinical trial that just got published, a lot of the case studies we're doing and, and profiles on the practices that have adopted Lightforce all in, uh, we're seeing some very positive results that would suggest what we have believed in theory all along is actually happening in, in practicality. This is probably a dumb question, but I'll, I'll ask it and pretend it's just for the audience. Um, who regulates this? Is this regulated by the FDA or is this not regulated by anyone? No, it's absolutely regulated by the FDA. So uh, we're a 510K class two device, both for the software and for the hardware. And I remember when we first got our FDA approval back in 2018, we had a very close relationship with the FDA because there really was not a whole world of 3D printed, directly 3D printed medical devices. Uh, clear aligners involve 3D printing, but the actual thing you put in your mouth is not 3D printed. To that point, a lot of the 3D printed medical devices were in the orthopedic world where they would 3D print knee replacements, hip replacements. 
But that market actually never really took off, Brett, because the value of customization wasn't as high in the bones as it is in the mouth. You could actually be three to five millimeters off on like a hip implant, for example, and it's going to be totally fine because bone is a dynamic living tissue. It's got bone cells, vasculature, and it's going to remodel until it's okay. So the cost of being wrong is as high. But I don't know if you ever had like a filling in your mouth mm -hmm. where, you know, first thing after they place the filling, the dentist will ask you to bite on like blue paper and tap, 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 and then they might file it down half a millimeter. But that first bite, that feels really weird, right? Mm -hmm. So the dentist shaving down half a millimeter, making it feel good, changes your bite completely. And that's only for one tooth. Now, imagine if you're an orthodontist, you got to do that for every tooth in the mouth. So essentially what light force and things like clear aligners do is they eliminate that tinkering that the dentist needs to do or the orthodontist needs to do. So the value of customization, I would argue, is higher in the mouth than it is anywhere else in the body. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to competition, then, do you view the competition as the clear liners or is there still just a massive market of traditional bracket braces that you can disrupt before you even are, are trying to compete with the Invisaligns of the world? To be clear, I think clear liners are fantastic. Personally, I still see patients two days a month. That's an important part of any venture capital we've taken is I'm not giving that up for many reasons. I love seeing patients. We're a patient's first company. But... Um, I would say my practice today, I'm, I'm probably something my parents always said uh, growing up is always do what's best for the patient first and, and the rest will follow. And, and I absolutely would believe that. And so if the best thing for the patient is a clear aligner, that's what they're going to get. And for me, that's about 20%. Now, a lot of people will come see me uh, specifically for light force, which is great, but no, I think it's synergistic. I mean, what we envision a future where everything that goes in the mouth is mass customized because there's a value to that in terms of efficiency and patient outcomes. And clear liners are absolutely mass customized. They were the first example of it. I think our main competition is stock braces, stock metal braces. What types of orthodontists are you seeing embrace this? What's that like ICP? Yeah, the early adopter for us is it's somebody that understands the benefits of a digital workflow. It can be somebody that wants the best outcomes for their patient. It can be somebody that has had trouble retaining staff. That was actually a big driver of growth for Lightforce after COVID is a lot of the ortho staff didn't come back. And so they needed to do more with less. And so, they, you know, one of the ways you scale the most expensive employee in a practice, which is the, the doctor, the orthodontist, is you bring on technology that makes them more efficient like Lightforce. Another nuance to our technology is that the doctor does all the planning on a computer screen. And so actually in most states, an ortho, a well-trained orthodontic assistant can actually deliver the braces or install the hardware, as we say. Another reason is because maybe some of the older orthodontists don't want to retire and they don't want to be bending over placing brackets all day. Light Force eliminates that. They can do a better job by placing brackets virtually and then having their staff deliver them. This is a variety of different reasons. I wouldn't say it's, it's age correlated, actually, which is interesting. We would have thought that, you know, a lot of our big users were younger orthodontists or recent grads, but that's actually not the case. It's a pretty consistent spectrum across the age group. Hmm, that's super interesting. Yeah. 
I think we might skew a little bit more East Coast right now because the, the company was founded in the East Coast, but um, we're seeing fast adoption on the West Coast as well. What type of consumer education do you have to do and how much effort and money and resources do you have to put into consumer education so that they know to ask their orthodontist for this or so that when their orthodontist recommends it, they feel comfortable understanding what this technology is, how it works? It's a really good question. We've actually spent very little effort to this point in consumer education, and that's going to be a focus probably for 24. We'll probably run some trials this quarter and look at how we do that, refine our, our playbook there. But we know it's a lever to pull. I just, I think it's going to be a bit more of an expensive lever to pull to go direct to consumer with consumer education. The number one reason a patient chooses an orthodontic appliance, whether it's aligners or braces or, or anything like that, is because their orthodontist recommended it. So for that reason, we started with a focus effort towards the professional channel. We wanted to lock arms with providers, orthodontists, uh, like me, like my dad, and really help them win and help them be the hero of the story. And so it kind of created this B to B to C marketing effort where we arm the orthodontist to market on our, our behalf and end up with them being the hero of the story. So that's been the focus and we won with that model, but we absolutely believe that with some more consumer education, we can win there as well. And that can be an important part of the flywheel, but there's obviously more noise to cut through when you do direct consumer marketing like that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I've worked with a few companies when they embark on that. It's such an expensive journey and it's much more difficult to measure the effectiveness. And it's just a, a long tail approach of, okay, you're going to get a consumer to ask their you know, doctor or orthodontist or dentist about something. And then somehow that leads to a deal. That's a, a very complex and long sales cycle. Yes, exactly. You need an extra level of sophistication in, in the marketing playbook to capture the, the demand and get it to the right orthodontist. And it it's doable. And I, certainly I know we have a team today that is capable of executing all that. We just, uh, it's a stage specific move. One thing I've learned from my conversations with founders is they can typically you know, boil the success they're having down to like a few key turning points where you know, this one thing happened and it really changed everything. Do any turning points like that come to mind for you? Yes, absolutely. So I remember back in 2020, we just closed the Series B. It was during COVID. And obviously during COVID, nobody wanted to open their mouths in strange foreign places. So, you know, all the dentists were shut down for about three to four months, which is pretty scary time for us because we obviously all of our business went away and we had just launched. But when orthodontists came back, they had this problem where they didn't want to see patients as often. Patients didn't want to come see them as often. And they had a big staff shortage. So what that did is that it created this impetus to change and it catalyzed usage of digital technologies like remote monitoring, uh, light force, and, and clear liners. And what we observed after that was that patients that hadn't been seen for five months in, in liners and light force came back to the orthodontist looking great because the doctor started with the end in mind. All the appliances were designed for that specific patient with the end goal in mind. And they came back looking great, whereby all the, and in, in contrast, the patients that were in stock braces came back looking pretty rough. And so orthodontists were forced to use digital technologies for a short period of time. And what it did, it catalyzed their learning about light force. And a lot of people said, oh my gosh, these cases are coming back looking great. And I didn't have to see this patient as often, and they're still coming back looking great. So how can I use this tool to be more efficient? And that at the time wasn't innately obvious to us, but 
we observed how orthodontists were using this and said, hey, what they're doing is, is making a lot of sense. And actually, that was an interesting point because it was a moment for Lightforce when the product became not ours anymore, but it felt like it belonged to our community of users. At that point, they were teaching us how to use this. And that really for us created a flywheel of listening to our customers. I mean, that was a goal of being, or being the best at listening to our customers and reacting based on what they did. So our recommendations are really driven from customer feedback. And I think our entire company realized the value of that community at that moment. When it comes to the adoption you're seeing today, are there any numbers that you can share? I can share that last year we grew roughly 300% year over year. And to date, we have roughly 10% of North American orthodontists who are sub actively submitting cases to Lightforce. So after three and a half years in business, I think it's fair to say we're growing quite fast. And we're in roughly 23 orthodontic residencies right now as well, which I'm very proud of because those are kind of the thought centers of, of orthodontics. And uh, you know the new waves of graduating orthodontists are going to know what digital orthodontics will look like going forward. I don't think there's any doubt that this is what the future of orthodontics will look like. I think how fast it happens is up, up to our execution and our ability to educate the world of orthodontics and, and patients. What keeps you up at night right now? The things that keep me up at night in general are people, culture, and not running out of money. So <laughs> we just raised a Series D, an $80 million Series D earlier this year, which was a tough one. So we're pretty good there. The other things are finding the right people. Again, this is not a brilliant idea, but it requires very talented folks to execute. There's no blueprint for this. So we need people that can have the ability to learn quickly. And the other thing is culture. And that's a tough thing is, you know, as the company grows, we have about four years ago, we had 20 people. Today, we have 650 people. And so, you know, one of the natural laws of the startups, they say you should never violate is never double your headcount year over year. We've had to do that two years in a row to meet demand. So culture is very important. It's hard to scale culture as the company grows. And so scaling things like transparency are critical. Goal setting, making sure that everyone is very acutely aware of how what they do influences the company's goals and, and then making sure we can get bottoms up feedback, annual goal setting process. And then continuing to move fast, making sure that people are all the time thinking about how they balance risk with moving quickly. If nothing changes in this industry, then our competitors will win. Our competitors are, are big ortho companies. And if nothing changes, they will win. They, they've, they've got a lot of you know cash and they've done very well for many years. And I think it's a world where everyone does really well together, but our strength as a company is to move quickly. And, and if we fail to continue moving quickly, then the competition wins. And so that's top of mind for us as well as scaling that as part of our culture, uh, bringing on the right processes that enable people to continue being creative and build. You mentioned funding there. So I'd love to ask a little bit about the fundraising journey. So you've raised over 150 million so far. I'm sure you've learned a lot of different things from that journey. If we had to take like one big lesson, one big takeaway, what would that be? Oh man, it changes at every stage. It changes at every stage. The biggest thing I would say is spend more time preparing for a fundraise than actually fundraising. Make sure you have your story right. Make sure that it's stage specific. So at every stage, people are going to want more data. The later you go, people are going to want more data and more proof. The value of a story is greater at earlier stages, but also you know, it's got to be in a big market with a big opportunity, or even if things fail, you can still win big. But I think the best advice I could give is 
spend more time preparing for your fundraise before you actually fundraise and give people access to your data room. What was the toughest round to raise? Was it this most recent one, the Series D? This was not an easy one. We had a banner year in 22. We were very fortunate that that was a year we did really well in. I think everyone's round was probably overpriced in 2021 a little bit, uh, or maybe appropriately priced for the market. But you know, compared to the world we're in right now, it, it looks <laughs> a little bit overpriced in retrospect. So we were very fortunate to have a, a significant up round, but it required a banner year to get that done. I would say the hardest round that we raised was in 2020 during COVID. I remember coming back from Silicon Valley, getting to SFO and looking up at the television when the NBA shut down and, and they were canceling the March Madness and you know all of our customers went away. People couldn't open their mouth in orthodontic offices anymore. And so our revenue went to zero and we still had to fundraise because uh, we were a few months away from cash out. So that was probably the most stressful fundraise. It's funny how everyone remembers that NBA moment. I remember yeah. that and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks said, oh, wait, and then the NBA shut down. And I was like, all right, this is serious. This is real. Yeah. Yeah. This most recent one was, was a, a bit stressful as well. With the um, We were evaluating, fortunate enough to have five term sheets in the last Series D. And as we were deliberating this, the SVB issue happened. And so you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen there. So I remember having a, a, a pretty intense board call on Sunday before markets were going to open on Monday and saying, we, we, we need to get a, a term sheet signed in, in case we need to go to you know a big bank and, and get a term loan here to keep the business going because we don't know where our cash is. So fortunately, everything turned out well there, but I, every fundraise has its own stresses. And I think people that haven't uh, gone through it uh, very directly, it's it, it always sounds easier than it actually was. Yeah, for sure. Now, outside of fundraising, let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything that you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give yourself? Always make sure you surround yourself with great people. And that's the advice I would give to any any founder is that a company is nothing more than the collection of people. And your ability to execute and scale is going to depend on the level of talent that, that you can bring in. And you know, it's worth making that extra call to reference somebody. It's worth meeting people and making the effort to meet people in person, even if it requires jumping on a plane. But you know, the most important part of building a company is absolutely the people. I've heard people argue, you know, you focus on the customers as well. I was a bit fortunate in that my dad is an orthodontist and, and I, a lot of my our customers early on were friends uh, and, and I'm a customer as well. But man, so much depends on, on who you hire and who you work with early, including investors. That's your board. And, and you can learn so much from the right investors as well. Certainly, I was lucky to have great investors and I did as well. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? I think in five years, you're not just about life force, but I think standard of care in medicine and dentistry will be personalized treatment. I mean, and you already see this happening with genome specific cancer therapies. That trend is going to continue into dentistry, into orthodontics, into so many areas where patient care is patient specific. And we certainly believe we're pioneering this in the largest segment for orthodontics. I expect what we're doing at Lightforce to become standard of care, but across medicine and healthcare, I expect in five years that we have more of an emphasis on personalized medicine, personalized treatment. Amazing. I love the vision. We're up on time, so we'll have to wrap. If there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? They should follow our Instagram handle and uh, TikTok. Uh, we are on both. We are Lightforce. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Brett. Oh, oh, oh.
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 